Hey everyone, while you wait for the next episode of Dirty Money Moves to drop, we're releasing a full episode of my other podcast, Murderish. The episode you're about to hear is about the McStay family, who went missing in 2010 near San Diego, California. Nearly four years would pass before loved ones received news of the missing family's whereabouts. Although family members and friends finally had answers, the news wasn't at all what they had hoped to hear. Joseph and Summer McStay, along with their two young children, were found buried in the Mojave Desert, the victims of homicide. The case was eventually brought to trial, but afterward, and to this day, there are many unanswered questions about the tragic case. Next week, you'll hear a brand new episode of Dirty Money Moves. Until then, here's a full episode of Murderish. And stick around until the end, because my sound engineer included some bloopers just to give you a taste of what he hears before the episode is cleaned up and edited for your listening pleasure. All right, without further delay, here is the McStay family, Buried Truths. The following episode contains details about two children who were murdered. Listener discretion is advised. Losing a loved one to a violent crime creates a sense of loss and suffering few of us can fathom. If the perpetrator is caught and the subsequent trial results in justice, some sense of peace can be felt by victims' families. But what if the investigation involves an entire family that simply vanishes? Could the truth become so muddled that an innocent man is pegged as their killer? When Joseph and Summer McStay, along with their two toddlers, went missing from their California home in February of 2010, no one knew what to think. Several aspects of the investigation left behind a great deal of unanswered questions. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the complex and controversial case of the McStay family. This case takes us to Fallbrook, California, located roughly 50 miles north of San Diego. The community of 30,000 is known for its temperate climate, avocado groves, and downtown boutique shopping. Fallbrook is a great place to raise a family. In fact, it's often referred to as the friendly village. In the winter of 2009, the McStay family moved 40 miles inland to Fallbrook from the coastal city of San Clemente. It was a decision meant to benefit the young family and provide them with a sense of security. Instead, the fateful move put them in harm's way. Joseph Brian McStay was born in Akron, Ohio on November 20, 1969. During his infancy, Joseph's parents, Patrick and Susan, relocated to the Dallas area. A few years later, they had another son, Michael, who later went by Mike. The boys were inseparable, but unfortunately, their parents were not. Patrick and Susan McStay divorced amicably, and Patrick remained close with his sons. For a while, the boys lived under different roofs, with Mike living with his mother and Joseph living with his father. As the boys entered their teenage years, Susan started dating again. Around 1986, she met Tom Blake, a businessman from San Rafael, California, who happened to be traveling through Dallas. The pair began dating and maintained a long-distance relationship 
for about a year before Susan and her youngest son, Mike, joined Tom in San Rafael. Joseph moved in with them a few months later. In 1987, Tom sold his home and bought a house in Dana Point. During the late 1980s and into the early 90s, Tom raised his stepsons as if they were his own children. He even opened a deli in town where Mike was briefly employed. The California lifestyle suited Joseph, who made friends easily with his personable nature and laid-back attitude. As he got older, Joseph developed a passion for surfing and could often be found with one of his many surfboards at Capistrano Beach. When Tom and Susan divorced in 1994 after six years of marriage, San Clemente State Beach became Joseph's favorite surfing spot. Joseph went on to attend Saddleback College in Mission Viejo. While enrolled in business classes, he reportedly met the woman who became his first wife. Not much can be found in the press about this relationship, except that they had a son who chose to live with his mother in the San Diego area. Sometime after the disintegration of that relationship, Joseph met Summer, a real estate agent native to L.A. County. Born on December 27, 1966, as Virginia Lisa Aranda, everyone knew her as Summer. Mysteriously, she also went by a plethora of other names, Summer Martelli, Lisa Martelli, Summer Aranda Martelli, the list goes on. It's unclear why Summer opted to use so many name variations. San Diego County Detective Troy DeGaulle would later theorize to CBS News, Summer did not care for her Hispanic heritage. Therefore, she assumed identities in the things she liked. According to her sister Tracy, Summer admired Italian culture, hence the chosen surname of Martelli. It's possible that was the name of her former stepfather, though there are no records indicating he adopted Summer or her siblings. Summer and Tracy's mother, Blanche, would eventually divorce their stepfather, leaving her to raise Summer, Tracy, and their brother Joseph on her own. It's unclear how Summer met Joseph McStay, but it's true, at least in their relationship, that opposites attract. He was a social butterfly and Summer was far more reserved. Joseph was impulsive and adventurous, while Summer was more strategic and regimented in her approach to life. They had been dating for several years when Summer discovered that she was pregnant with their first son. Baby Gianni was born on July 9, 2005. Another son, who they named Joseph Jr., came into the world soon after, on January 31, 2007. Both pregnancies were home births, and before the kids were old enough to talk, Summer knew she wanted them homeschooled. Later in 2007, the couple tied the knot in a small ceremony attended by family and close friends. As Gianni and Joey Jr. grew from infants into mobile toddlers, the McStays decided their small San Clemente duplex was getting a little cramped. In November of 2009, they relocated to a five-story home in Fallbrook. As reported by the LA Times, Joseph and Summer's beige house sat on a cul-de-sac beneath a hillside, lush with avocado trees. It was a serene neighborhood for the boys to grow up in and a short drive whenever Joseph wanted to surf at the nearest beach. The yard was also big enough for Summer to adopt two dogs, Bear and Digger. Aside from being an animal lover, Summer loved being a mother to her young boys. She stayed home to focus on raising them while her husband balanced family life and growing his own business. 
Joseph was an ambitious entrepreneur who owned and operated an online business called Earth Inspired Products. The company specialized in designing and installing decorative indoor fountains. It was a startup when his sons were first born, but with a little help, Joseph McStay's business would grow exponentially. It was through his business that Joseph became acquainted with a man named Chase. Born Charles Ray Merritt in 1957, Chase is a native of Apple Valley in San Bernardino County. Chase has had a long career of manual labor. After receiving his metalworking license in 1982, he was employed at several ironworks businesses. When Joseph met him in 2007, Chase was a freelance contractor. He was first hired to collaborate with Joseph on a more complex project that involved elaborate waterfalls. Joseph was so impressed by Chase's work that they formed a long-term partnership. Joseph brought forth the ideas and Chase helped execute them. Before long, business was booming. What had started as a business relationship soon morphed into a strong friendship. Joseph and Chase regularly played paintball together, talked on the phone several times a day, and took turns having dinner at each other's houses at least once a week. Chase became a trusted family friend. At the same time, he was helping Joseph's business grow. Around the time sales started to pick up, Joseph hired Dan Kavanaugh to design a new website for the company. According to Joseph's father, Patrick McStay, in the docuseries Two Shallow Graves, Dan was supposed to be paid by Joseph based on sales and website hits in exchange for maintaining the website. Dan also came up with an SEO algorithm that made Earth-inspired products appear more readily in online search results. Dan's work for the company made him feel entitled to a larger cut of the money, which Joseph allegedly refused. Despite the conflict, the future looked bright for the McStays. The children seemed happy in their new living space. Joseph was on the brink of a lucrative international business deal, and Summer was overseeing renovations on the house. The family intended to occupy it for a time and then flip it at a profit or rent it out. Life was good for the McStay family. Neither they nor those who knew them had any reason to suspect dark times lay ahead. On February 4, 2010, Summer called her sister to make plans for an upcoming visit. Tracy had recently given birth and both sisters were excited for Summer to meet the newest addition to the family. Joseph spoke to his father Patrick on the phone in the late morning. They caught up for a while before Joseph said he had to rush off to a lunch meeting. He and Chase were meeting at a Chick-fil-A in Rancho Cucamonga to discuss a large-scale project that involved 500 waterfalls. As reported by CNN, once the contract was signed, the project was valued at nearly $9 million. The deal was major. There's no indication one way or the other if the business meeting with Chase ever happened because no one saw or heard from the McStay family ever again. Days would pass before anybody noticed the McStays had vanished. It wasn't because nobody cared. People close to the missing family simply made excuses for the lack of communication from them, at least at first. Eventually, family members and friends tried calling both Joseph and Summer multiple times over the course of a few days. Some thought they'd taken off on an impromptu vacation. On February 9th, five days after they went missing, 
an unidentified business colleague stopped by the McStay's house and saw both family dogs outside. Their bowls were filled with food, so the colleague surmised the McStay's had left town and asked someone to look after the family pets. In actuality, sometime after the 4th, neighbors noticed the McStay's dogs were barking incessantly, all day and night. One of the neighbors contacted animal control. As reported by the Los Angeles Daily News, the officer turned on a spigot to provide water for the dogs. Another neighbor volunteered to feed the starved animals, thinking the McStays would return soon, but they didn't. Patrick McStay was frantic after nearly a week of not hearing from his son or daughter-in-law. He also felt powerless. There was little he could do from 1,500 miles away at his Texas residence. Dozens of calls and emails Patrick sent had gone unanswered, only heightening his concern. The voicemail for Joseph's business line had become full, which was incredibly out of character. Patrick called his other son, Mike, imploring him to visit his brother's house to see what he could find out. But as Patrick recalled in two shallow graves, Mike refused, telling his father he was too busy. Though he refused to make a personal visit to the house, Mike did ask the San Diego Sheriff's Office to conduct a welfare check on the home. Since there were no signs of foul play when officers arrived, they didn't go inside. February 13th marked the first time anyone entered the McStay family residence. By then, nine days had passed since anyone heard from the family. Mike finally gave in to his father's pleas and met Chase at the house so they could see if anything hinted at the McStay's whereabouts. Mike immediately noticed the two dogs alone in the backyard, which struck him as odd. He was able to gain entry by crawling through an open window in Joseph's office. It was clear nobody was home. Mike and Chase were greeted by the odd sight of spoiled food scattered around as if the family left in a hurry. There was no trace of the McStays, but Mike decided to give it a little more time before taking further action. By that point, Animal Control had reached out to Mike, asking him to take the McStays' two dogs. Otherwise, they would be brought to the local pound. He took in Bear and Digger and waited, hoping for the best. Two more days passed with no word from Summer or Joseph. According to Chase in Two Shallow Graves, he told Mike, Call the Sheriff's Department or I'm going to. Finally, on February 15th, Mike McStay notified the San Diego police that the entire family was missing. San Diego County detectives executed a search warrant at the Avocado Vista Lane home on February 19, 2020, and they were perplexed by what they found inside. There were no signs of forced entry or a struggle. No belongings appeared to be missing, and Joseph's credit cards were left untouched. Even more strange, a spoiled carton of eggs and a rotting banana sat on the kitchen counter. Bowls of popcorn in the boys' child-sized bowls sat uneaten on the living room floor. It almost looked apocalyptic, as though something had urgently rushed the family away from their home. Nothing in the house made detectives think the family had gone away on an impromptu vacation. At the same time, nothing suggested a crime had occurred either. That same day, investigators were made aware that the McStay's SUV had been located. 
The white 1996 Isuzu Trooper, now impounded, was initially found abandoned in the parking lot of a San Isidro strip mall on February 8th, which was only a stone's throw from Tijuana, Mexico. Investigators were stumped, but couldn't help but wonder whether the McStays had crossed the border to start a whole new life in Mexico. Perhaps they decided to live off the grid, leaving behind everyone they knew. Without any leads, detectives had to play the waiting game. They recruited outside help, asking Interpol to be on the lookout. They also distributed flyers around Fallbrook and surrounding areas and asked Mexican authorities to search any major travel hubs. The McStay case dominated national news headlines, making America wonder how an entire family could just disappear. When Summer's sister, Tracy Russell, saw the news reports and heard subsequent theories, she was in disbelief. She told the Los Angeles Daily News that her sister was known to shop near the border, but Summer was aware of the gang violence in Mexico and would never risk crossing the border with her two toddlers. Detectives canvassed the McStay's neighborhood. One neighbor's security camera had footage from February 3rd of a vehicle that appeared to be the McStay family's SUV. Footage shows the vehicle pulling out of the driveway and continuing down the block. The timestamp was between 4 and 5 p.m., but the camera angle didn't capture any faces of individuals in the car. This may have been the last sighting. Based on cell phone records, though, Summer and Joseph McStay were texting each other until about 5.45 that evening. The last recorded communication has mysterious undertones. At around 8.30 that night, a call was placed from Joseph's cell phone to his close business associate, Chase. The call went unanswered. Was Joseph calling Chase for help? Or was this another routine call between two close friends? These questions would come up on more than one occasion. On March 5th, San Diego detectives were hit with their first major lead. In surveillance footage dated February 8, 2010, two tall, shadowy figures can be seen crossing the Mexican border alongside two small children. Some people considered the footage proof that the McStays had crossed into Mexico. To others, what was seen on the video footage was inconclusive. As Mike McStay commented to NBC News, it's very grainy, overshadowed, there's no definition to shape. The reason detectives even consider this a lead was what they found in Joseph and Summer's online history. Less than a week before their disappearance, someone using the family computer searched for information about traveling to Mexico and what documentation minors needed to enter the country. And months earlier, Summer had communicated with a Craigslist seller about purchasing a Spanish-language course through Rosetta Stone. All of this information made it seem possible the McStays had willingly taken an extended trip to Mexico. The release of that information led to a string of alleged sightings of the family, which only turned up false leads. At the end of March, the FBI joined the search, and in May, the mysterious case was spotlighted on America's Most Wanted. Family members hoped the increased publicity might provide investigators with new leads. But then, for almost four years, the case went cold. As time went on, loved ones and detectives grew less hopeful about finding the family alive. 
even if the footage had captured the McStays leaving the country, investigators still had so many questions, like what went down in the four days before the border crossing video. Summer's sister, Tracy, summed up the agony of not knowing to the Los Angeles Daily News by saying, It's a horrible, empty feeling. I'm freaking out over here. You have your highs and lows. You just try to stay positive. On November 11th of 2013, a 911 call turned the missing persons case on its head. Outside Victorville, near the I-15, off-road motorcyclist John Bluff spotted something deeply unsettling in the middle of the Mojave Desert. As heard in two shallow graves, Bluff told the dispatcher, I'm out here behind the dump and I found what looks like part of a human skull, adding that he was in an area with no paved roads. For the next 48 hours, detectives and forensic anthropologists worked tirelessly to excavate the sandy earth in the vicinity of the bone fragment. During the exhaustive dig, four sets of skeletal remains were uncovered in two separate graves. Through dental records, the adult remains were later confirmed to be 40-year-old Joseph McStay and his 43-year-old wife, Summer. A short distance away, four-year-old Gianni and his three-year-old brother, Joey Jr., shared a grave. It was the worst possible outcome anyone could have imagined. People were baffled by the fact that an entire family was gone, and they wondered what kind of monster could kill two innocent young children. While millions of people were in shock over the quadruple homicide, a small public vigil was held at the gravesite on November 20, 2013. In the relentless heat of the Mojave Desert, doves were released in the family's honor. Joseph would have turned 44 that day. Loved ones stood before four wooden crosses, two of which stood at lower heights to represent the two young boys. It was an incomprehensible tragedy that at that time still had not been solved. Joseph's father, Patrick, told CNN, From day one, I just had this gut feeling that I was never going to see them again. I just knew. In early 2014, a more elaborate memorial service was held for the McStays in San Clemente. As reported by the San Diego Union-Tribune, four surfers paid homage to Joseph McStay by jumping off the pier into the ocean, as he had done so many times before. This led into a memorial service at Vineyard Community Church, which was attended by over 200 people. At times, the memorial was a celebration of the love Joseph and Summer had for their children and each other. Susan Blake told the San Diego Union-Tribune she had maintained hope her son and extended family would be found alive, but now that chapter of hope is gone. I need to start a new chapter of justice. The pressure on law enforcement to identify a perpetrator seemed to be growing with each passing day. Since the remains were discovered around Victorville, the multiple murder case was transferred to the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office. The mystery surrounding the McStay's deaths became even more elusive as detectives analyzed the gravesite. Right off the bat, detectives struggled to make sense of the location where the bodies were dumped. It was around 100 miles north of the McStay's home, in a barren desert landscape. The fact that the motorcyclist had even ventured out that way was some kind of miracle. The McStays had laid in wait for over three years, 
for someone to stumble upon their burial site. It could have been even longer if fate hadn't intervened. Because the graves were only a few feet deep, the bodies had fallen victim to the elements and preyed upon by native wildlife. These factors had quickened the decomposition process. Several details at the gravesite stood out to investigators. None of the victims were wearing shoes, and Summer was topless with the exception of a paint-speckled bra. In addition to the skeletal remains in each plot, detectives also recovered a child's diaper and a pair of pants. Buried with the bodies was the potential murder weapon, a rusty three-pound sledgehammer. The condition of Joseph's remains spoke to the brutality of this crime. He was wrapped in a futon cover with an electrical cord tied around his neck. He had suffered multiple fractures to his head, leg, and ribs after being struck at least four times with a heavy object. Summer also had several fractures, including in her jaw and the frontal bones of her skull. As for the children, it was determined Gianni was struck in the head at least seven times. Little Joseph Jr. was hit so many times, it shattered his skull into tiny pieces. Extensive forensic analysis revealed the same cause of death for all four family members, blunt force trauma to the head. The savage nature of the killings made detectives wonder who may have hated the family enough to inflict that level of suffering. The key to finding the killer or killers was establishing a motive. On November 15th, the San Bernardino Sheriff's Department went public with one detail about the murders when they announced the family's common cause of death at a news conference. While the McStay's loved ones tried their best to come to terms with the grim discovery, the years-long investigation pressed on. Over the next year, detectives interviewed anyone who had been in the McStay's lives and they struggled to identify any enemies of the family. Chase Merritt had been on investigators' radar from the beginning. For starters, he had a long history of petty crime. According to the LA Times, Chase had a pattern of drifting haphazardly between blue-collar jobs until he was lucky enough to encounter Joseph McStay. Chase's prior offenses included charges for burglary, grand theft, and criminal trespassing all of which had led to time served in county jail or stints in state prison. According to the Tampa Tribune, he also stole welding equipment from a Monrovia-based ironworks company. This laundry list exposed Chase as a repeat offender. In fact, 35 years earlier, Chase had burglarized a site just five miles from the McStay gravesites. San Diego County Detective Troy DeGaulle had interviewed Chase two days after the missing person's report was filed. At the time, it struck him as unusual that Chase had referred to the family in the past tense. Then there was the activity linked to Chase on Joseph's QuickBooks account. Detective Daniel Hankey combed through records on the accounting software around the time the family went missing, and he noticed several irregularities. Two days before the McStays vanished, Chase was added to the QuickBooks account as a vendor. In the days following the disappearance, payments were made to Chase from Joseph's business account. As reported by the Desert Dispatch, between February 5th and 8th of 2010, checks totaling more than $13,000 were backdated to February 4th, 
and then cashed or deposited by Chase. Though the checks were endorsed by Joseph, the signature appeared to be forged. In police interviews, Chase never denied being the last person to see Joseph alive, but he insisted that Joseph was his best friend and he would never harm him or his family. The evidence, however, suggested otherwise. According to the Desert Dispatch, FBI Special Agent Kevin Bowles determined through cell phone records that Chase and Joseph spoke 27 times the last day the family was seen alive. These records also revealed that on February 6th, two days after the McStay's disappearance, Chase's phone pinged off of the two cell phone towers positioned closest to the family's gravesite. It was a chilling discovery that placed Chase right where all four victims were buried. At that point, investigators wondered if money may have been a motive for murder. It was a plausible theory given that detectives found out Chase was a chronic gambler. The business partnership had become increasingly lucrative over the three years Joseph and Chase worked together. The idea of losing his only source of income would have been devastating for Chase. According to the Washington Post, detectives learned that three days before Joseph had gone missing, he sent Chase an email that made it seem like he was on the brink of firing him. The email Joseph wrote to Chase stated that he wanted the money Chase owed due to a bungled job on a recent project. Patrick McStay confirmed that Chase was at risk of losing his job. He told CNN Joey had talked about the quality of some of the fountains had slipped, and Joey wasn't happy with that because he was getting complaints. If the reputation of Joseph's business was at stake due to Chase's sloppy work, it's very possible Joseph put his livelihood before their friendship. But was that enough to have infuriated or threatened Chase to a point that drove him to slaughter an entire family? Other suspects were questioned by police, including Dan Kavanaugh. Summer also had an ex-boyfriend who was allegedly obsessed with her, despite him knowing she was married. But both men had alibis. To San Bernardino detectives, Chase Merritt was the most likely suspect. Boldly, Chase offered his own theory about what happened to the McStays. According to CBS, in early 2014, he told British gossip website The Daily Mail that he was writing a book called Afraid of the Light, in which he claims Joseph was slowly being poisoned by Summer. The only basis he had for this theory was a mysterious illness Joseph was afflicted with weeks before he and his family went missing. Due to a bout of vertigo, he was bedridden for a few days but quickly recovered. Still, Chase maintained that Summer did this to run off with the kids and start a whole new life without Joseph. When investigators fact-checked these allegations by interviewing friends and family, they heard no mention of marital problems. It seemed clear to them that Chase was trying to divert suspicion. Detectives pivoted toward physical evidence, which they were still lacking. As part of the investigation, forensic analysts swapped the McStay's SUV. This hadn't been done when the vehicle was first found in 2010. At that time, the matter was still presumed to be a missing persons case. When testing was performed in 2014, it led detectives down a very direct path. Three distinct DNA samples were found inside the SUV, that of Summer, 
Joseph, and Chase. As reported by the Tampa Tribune, Chase Merritt's DNA was detected on the trooper's steering wheel, the gear shift, and the radio control dial. After years without answers, laden with public pressure to pinpoint who had killed a family of four in their prime, investigators finally had their man. Or did they? Chase Merritt was arrested on November 5th of 2014 and charged with four counts of murder. Some family members were relieved by the news, convinced the culprit had finally been identified. Mike McStay was quoted by the Tampa Tribune as saying, Joseph was a great brother, a great father. He would have done anything to protect those boys and Summer. And he tried to help Chase and provide work for this guy. And this is how he was repaid. He'll get what he's got coming to him. Patrick McStay took the opportunity to publicly criticize the handling of the investigation and how long it took to make an arrest. He said to NBC News, I knew they screwed this thing up. All the rest was just sugarcoating to make it look like they were really interested in solving, doing something. They did virtually nothing. Patrick's scrutiny would continue as court proceedings got underway. The suspenseful trial began on January 7, 2019, with San Bernardino County Superior Court Judge Michael A. Smith presiding. Since the defendant's arrest, DA Mike Ramos told media outlets he had considered pursuing the death penalty. Under California state law, the case fell under a special circumstances allegation because multiple killings were committed at once. This made Chase Merritt eligible for the harshest punishment possible, but it would be up to a jury to decide if a death sentence recommendation was fitting. In opening statements, prosecutor James McGee cited Chase's motive as greed and greed's child, fraud, according to Oxygen. McGee admitted that what exactly happened to the McStays the night they vanished was a mystery. But as documented in Two Shallow Graves, McGee stated, the who is Charles Merritt, the man who, while claiming to be Joseph's best friend, was forging checks from Joseph's business and taking money from him, putting his hands in the cookie jar. The who, the evidence will show, is the person whose cell phone activity for significant portions of time around the time of the murder is off the grid. Then, in painstaking detail, McGee laid out the extent of the injuries suffered by the McStay family. State prosecutors wanted to ensure members of the jury fully grasped what was at stake. Defense attorneys warned jurors that prosecutors had built a case around their client that was highly circumstantial. Chase's lead attorney, Raj Maline, also said exhibits from the state would only drive home their approach of confirmation bias. From the defense team's standpoint, investigators only interpreted new evidence through a lens that aligned with their own theories. One witness in the early days of the trial was Susan Blake, Joseph's mother. She told the jury Chase took advantage of her kindness just days after the family disappeared. Susan claimed that she had given him thousands of dollars under the guise that he needed it to keep the fountain business running. According to Oxygen, Susan said on the stand, At the time, I would do anything to help my son because I'm probably not in my right mind anyways. The defense countered by proclaiming detectives neglected to properly investigate Joseph's other business associate, Dan Kavanaugh. He also had a history of stealing in his past. 
During cross-exam, Susan described an argument she observed between Dan and Chase about the business after the McStays went missing. A potential clash of personalities between the two men made the accusation of Dan's involvement lose traction. The courtroom was captivated when FBI Special Agent Kevin Bowles took the stand to testify about the cell tower pings from Chase's cell phone. Defense attorneys called into question the accuracy of the cell phone pings and mentioned the defendant's sister living along the route where the McStays were buried. It was possible, they argued, that their client was in the area a few days after the victims went missing. However, he was just visiting family. A police interview between Lieutenant Ryan Smith and Chase's sister Juanita was played in the courtroom. In the recording, she said Chase had not visited her in years because he was always busy working. Her testimony undermined the defense team's theory about Chase visiting family around the time the McStays were killed and buried. Another key piece of evidence was the DNA found in the McStays' abandoned Isuzu Trooper. Trace amounts of Chase's DNA had been found on the driver's side. In early police interviews, he told detectives that he never drove the McStay's SUV. After their remains were discovered, his story changed. Chase then claimed that he had driven their car on rare occasions and for short distances. These inconsistencies cast a great deal of doubt on Chase's innocence. But the presence of his DNA in the trooper at all indicated that he had been one of the last people in the car before it was found abandoned. When questioned, Chase told detectives that he and Joseph had played paintball together sometime during the week of the disappearance. No doubt, the jury members were left wondering how Chase's DNA on the steering wheel could be explained if he wasn't involved in the homicides. Susanna Ryan, a crime and forensic lab manager, explained the use of an MVAC machine in her testimony for the defense. The advanced method of DNA collection works as a vacuum. According to audio of the trial in two shallow graves, an MVAC machine can pull 39 times more DNA than traditional swabbing methods. As Ryan explained, the device works best on porous items. Eight items retrieved from inside the graves led to inconclusive results from the MVAC. While some DNA was detected, it was below the lab's analytical threshold. Much of Ryan's testimony revolved around the technical aspects of forensic testing, which likely went over the jurors' heads. Under cross-exam, Ryan explained the possibility of contamination by investigators and the disintegration of DNA as a result of decomposition. Even the white cord around Joseph's neck returned inconclusive DNA upon testing. To address the presence of Chase's DNA on the steering wheel and the gear shift, Ryan mentioned the possibility of DNA transfer. She stated that trace amounts of DNA can be transferred from one primary contributor to a secondary contributor and vice versa. Ryan surmised Joseph and the defendant had perhaps shaken hands after their paintball game or their lunch meeting. Prosecutor Sean Doherty questioned the validity of Ryan's assessment under cross-exam. According to the San Bernardino County Sentinel, Doherty told Ryan, Years ago, you testified that the transfer of skin cells is actually questionable, to which she responded, I'm sure I said that sometimes it occurs and sometimes it doesn't because that's still the case today. 
Doherty then brought out the Stanley sledgehammer likely used to assault the victims. When asked if testing had been performed on the presumed murder weapon, Brian said it was not, because the sledgehammer itself was not porous, only the handle was. The state, however, had tested the weapon, but the results were inconclusive. Then there was the question of where the murders had occurred. Throughout the homicide investigation, detectives from both San Diego and San Bernardino counties had maintained the McStays were killed in their Fallbrook home. Detectives claimed the futon cover Joseph was wrapped inside of was traced back to their house, but no evidence was presented to back this up. In terms of physical evidence retrieved from the house, there was none. Part of the reason, according to the defense team, was irresponsible handling of the investigation from the get-go. Kathy Sanchez, a cousin of Summer McStay's mother, Blanche, testified that she helped clean the McStay home a short time after their disappearance. Blanche had thoroughly scrubbed down the house with bleach, potentially clearing away important evidence. The fact that family members were allowed to enter the home during an active investigation frustrated the defense attorneys. They argued there may have been evidence to exonerate their client had the home been designated a crime scene. Testimony from several witnesses who were intended to paint the defendant in a more favorable light backfired. Catherine Jarvis, Chase's ex-girlfriend and mother to his three children, testified that Chase was with her the night the McStays were last seen. During cross-examination, prosecutors asked Catherine about her cell phone records. She had called Chase at least five times between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. on February 4th. She explained that he was probably on their property near the pool house at the time. Prosecutor Melissa Rodriguez asked Catherine why she didn't just walk outside and find Chase instead of calling him to which she had no response. Shortly after her testimony, state prosecutors played a jailhouse recording of a conversation between Catherine and Chase. That conversation made it clear Chase had coached Jarvis on what to say on the witness stand. This completely tore apart her credibility as a character witness and a viable alibi. It was difficult to say definitively if Chase had been at his home on the 4th or not. 3D forensic analyst Eugene Lasio was called to the stand by the prosecution. He had analyzed footage from a neighbor's security camera that caught the outline and headlights of a white truck driving past the McStay residence on February 4th. Based on the position of the headlights and the truck's height from the ground, the analyst determined it had been Chase's truck. Defense attorneys argued many people in the area drove a white truck. As documented in Two Shallow Graves, when Lucia was asked by the defense if he was certain the truck belonged to Chase, he replied, I can't say exactly, but his truck model is consistent with identifiers in the footage. Dr. Lenny Rudin, a forensic video expert on the Law & Crime Network, disagreed with Lucio's assessment. He was fired by the prosecution after texting Britt Imes that the white truck in the footage was too long to be Chase's truck. This information prompted defense attorneys to allege a potential Brady violation, which occurs when prosecutors conceal or withhold evidence that could be favorable to the defendant. It was discovered that Imes had deleted the text thread between him and Dr. Rudin. When asked for an explanation, the prosecutor cited memory issues with his phone. 
the defense's motion for a mistrial was dismissed. The truck footage was the only evidence potentially placing Chase at the McStay home the night they went missing. It was now clear this evidence was shaky at best. Taylor Jarvis, Chase's oldest daughter, took the stand several months into trial. She poked holes in the timeline presented by prosecutors, saying that she had been with her parents on the evening of February 4th. She confirmed her father received a final call from Joseph, and her father didn't answer, prompting an argument between her mom and dad about Chase's tendency to ignore calls. Prosecutor Melissa Rodriguez cast doubt on Taylor's testimony. She wanted to know if Chase had ever asked his daughter to lie for him, which Taylor denied. She said the mishandling of the case had actually inspired her to pursue a career in law. In Two Shallow Graves, Rodriguez says about Taylor's testimony, Taylor was going to back her dad up no matter what. No matter what the evidence showed, she was going to say that her dad was home that night. Taylor was proud to be up there, and she smiles and she cries at the right time. It's almost so staged. The dramatic trial stretched into late May. As closing arguments were made, Chase's fate hung in the balance. Though it was rumored that Chase Merritt himself might testify, he didn't. Prosecutors rested their case by again outlining everything that indicated the defendant's guilt and emphasizing the sheer brutality of the crime. The jury were reminded that Chase's cell phone records and internet activity linked him to the killings. As quoted by ABC News, Deputy DA Britt Imes said incredulously, All of them just happened to happen. Just a coincidence that they happened the day Joseph and his family drop off the face of the earth. What is the likelihood of that? And all of that happening in that one week when the defendant is cashing checks left and right for his own benefit. In closing, the defense reiterated the lack of sufficient evidence. If the allegations that Chase had slaughtered the McStays in their home with a sledgehammer were true, why was there no blood? According to ABC News, defense attorneys argued the prosecution had focused on Chase's character and background, not the facts of the murders. The burden was on state prosecutors to prove the defendant's guilt. From the defense team's standpoint, state prosecutors had failed. Now the jury had to make a decision. They spent a week reviewing the evidence presented in the months-long trial. On June 10, 2019, the jury announced their verdict. They found Chase Merritt guilty on all four murder counts. Seven months after the verdict was rendered, on January 17, 2020, defense attorney Raj Malin filed a request for charges to be dismissed and motioned for a new trial. He cited allegations of ineffective trial counsel and prosecutorial misconduct. The judge denied both motions and ordered the court to reconvene another day. The defense was out of time. Before dismissing the courtroom, Judge Michael Smith allowed Patrick McStay to speak as he was scheduled to return to Texas the following day. According to the Victorville Daily Press, while addressing Chase, Joseph McStay's father said, I hope you burn in hell, but I will pray for your family and your children, as they are to me all innocent victims. Joey, Summer, Gianni, and Joey Jr. did nothing to you. They welcomed you into their lives and home. My son Joey did nothing but help you and your family. The delayed sentencing hearing resumed on January 21st. 
Chase would either be sentenced to death or life in prison without the possibility of parole. Before official sentencing, the McStay's loved ones were given time for impact statements. Summer's sister Tracy spoke first. According to NBC News, she said, I don't know that I can ever explain the impact this man has had on my family. We are scarred for life. Our family already received a life sentence. Mike McStay, Joseph's brother, struggled to maintain composure. As reported by NBC, he said, This world was robbed of four beautiful souls. I looked up to my brother. I'll never get another conversation with him. If I want to speak with him, I have to go to a gravesite. After a brief recess, Chase Merritt was given the opportunity to speak. As reported by the San Diego Union-Tribune, he said, The thing that is bringing you this solace is ending my life. Ending my life for a crime that I did not commit. I loved Joseph. He was a big part of my life and my family's life. I would never hurt him in any way. I would never raise my hand to a woman or a child. I did not do this thing. I know you don't believe me, and that's what kills me. To this day, Chase Merritt maintains his innocence. Under recommendation from the jury, Judge Michael A. Smith handed down the following sentence. Life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murder of Joseph McStay and the death penalty for the murders of Summer, Gianni, and Joseph Jr. As of August 2022, Chase Merritt remains on death row at San Quentin State Prison. No execution date has been set. In March of 2019, California Governor Gavin Newsom issued an executive order declaring a moratorium on executions in the state. According to the Death Penalty Information Center, a motion to strike down the order in August of 2021 was denied, and it remains in place. While the last execution in California occurred in 2006, the state still hosts the largest death row population in the United States. The tragic case of the McStay family murders remains a matter of strong public interest. The uncertainty of events surrounding their deaths leaves room for doubt. A good number of people believe it's possible that an innocent man is behind bars, while a vicious killer remains free. In 2022, the seven-episode docuseries Two Shallow Graves, The McStay Family Murders, was released on Investigation Discovery. It features exclusive interviews and unreleased details of the investigation. San Diego author Caitlin Rother is currently working on a book about the case, with an anticipated release of 2024. As quoted by CBS, Rother says the book will focus on a question that has never been fully answered. The mystery is, what happened to that family? I want to say a big thank you to Chris D., Renee P., and Nicole M. for joining Murderish Behind the Mic. Thank you all so much. Your support means a lot, and I'm looking forward to interacting with you on Patreon. Make sure you're subscribed to my other podcast, Dirty Money Moves Women in White Collar Crime. The podcast follows my investigation of a woman I met a few years ago, a woman who turned out to be a prolific scam artist. It's a wild story that even has ties to the Michael Jackson scandal. You can subscribe to Dirty Money Moves wherever you're listening right now. There are quite a few episodes to binge. Do me the biggest favor and tell your friends about Murderish or leave the show a positive rating and review in any podcast app. 
To show your support, you can also just wear a murderish t-shirt while you're out and about. And trust me, it's a great conversation starter. Go to Murderish.com to buy t-shirts, bags, coffee mugs, and so much more. Follow Murderish on Instagram and TikTok at Murderish Podcast. I've been doing a lot of fun videos there. Murderish sound design and audio editing is by Justin Hellstrom. Some of the music was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. As court proceedings... Are you really serious with La Cucaracha right now? A more elaborate memorial... A more elaborate, a more elaborate, more, oh my God. Oh my God, this fucking asshole and with his car every single time. Okay, here we go. This guy literally has like (laughs) one of those mufflers that looks like a damn coffee can, like a Folgers coffee can. And when he, before he parks, he usually like revs it up 20 million times before he parks. I have no idea why, but anyway, okay, here we go. The dating... Oh my God, my voice is shocked. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.